Welcome back to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast of Season 4. We are excited about sharing another story of the twists and turns that highlights the interesting people and their extraordinary stories that make up our community. As we present to you the experiences, some of which we share, some unique to the individual, but all insightful, educational, many times surprising, and always entertaining. Today's broadcast, once again, is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years, with a newly remodeled store on El Paseo, and even more convenient, their unique jewel box store right in the pro shop of Bighorn. And Back Nine Greens, where the products are a work of art, along with giving you the opportunity to have a custom-made short game facility in your own backyard. We would not be able to bring you these great stories without their support. My name is Marty Lockman, and today we bring you an ever-evolving story of great business success, coupled with the ability to have fun and success while living out a dream. Our guest is Mike Corliss, who, with his wife Lori, has been a member of our community since 1996. Mike, thanks for being with us today, and please take us on your journey that started in Sumner, Washington. Well, it's great to have you here, Mike, and, and what I'd like to talk about first is those days in Sumner as you were growing up. What kinds of things were you up to? What kind of new jobs did you have when you were younger? Talk to me about those early years. I lived in the rural part of Sumner up on Lake Taps, uh, which at that time was uh, developed by the Lake Taps Sales Company, and it was a lot of summer homes originally, and by the time I was eight years old, our family had moved there and built a permanent residence on the lake. I I started by uh, learning how to boat young, then decided to approach the uh, developer of the lake when I was 13 about salvaging cedar logs from the lake to split into fence posts to sell. My first business uh, was salvaging cedar, and then when the lake went down, because it was a reservoir in the, in the wintertime, uh, we would go out and we would cut the tops of the very large trees off and make shake bolts out of them and sell the shake bolts. Where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from in such an, at such an early age? My mother bought me two banks, and I didn't understand what, why two dime banks, they're both red. And she said, because you, you put half of your money in one and half in the other. And one of them, when you fill it up, will go to the bank. The other one, when you fill it up, you can use it to spend. So um, when, you only have, when you only have half your earnings to be able to support uh, buying bicycles and other things, you... Um, you become more motivated to do things, to earn enough money to be able to keep both banks full. What, what a great economic life lesson at a very early age. I mean, that has to serve you well as you move forward. So now you've, you have this entrepreneurial spirit. Is it successful? Or do you, how do you feel about it? I mean, is that something that now you've got this in your Genes, you obviously have a good work ethic because nothing works without that. It's interesting, even today, 50 years later, we're developing a piece of property and I find that there's a nice grove of cedar trees. Uh, I ask them to send them to the mill, okay, to be able to cut them into certain dimensional lumber. So there's sort of things that you that you start when you're, you know, 12 and 13 that, you know, now I'm 61 and you sort of can't quite get them out of your genes. What kind of jobs were your parents into? What did your dad do? What kind of uh, life lessons did that come about? Yeah, so um, I had two younger brothers. My father was an optometrist. He uh, practiced with his brother, who was also an optometrist, in Puyallup and then later in Auburn. Lake Tap sort of set between those two cities above Sumner, Puyallup, and Auburn. And uh, my mom uh, stayed home and, you know, made wonderful, wonderful dinners and uh, took, care of three, took care of three active boys. Well, we often hear in these stories, dad has to go out and make a living, has to support, and the, and the mother 
quite often is the rock of the family at home and keeps everything, the glue that keeps everything together during that period of time. My mother used to warn me, when your dad gets home, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And that just meant that when my dad got home, my mom would tell him how the day, how the day went. And if we weren't, if we weren't appropriate, she would tell him that we weren't being good during the day. Teenage years, you're in high school in Sumner, that we were involved in sports, uh, what sort of activities and what sort of things were you doing during that period of time? Sort of middle school um, and junior high, you know, track was the um, sport that I excelled the most in. So um, middle school held the 440 school record for that race and also through the javelin. By the time I was in high school, I had a driver's license and you know, had a, had a, had a, had a work truck and continued the lumber salvaging business. So it was really nice to be able to have a driver's license because then I could actually deliver the product. The little nickel one ads was, was my only source to be able to sell it because people had to come and had to, had to come and pick that up. And also I can remember for myself, there was a sense of independence now that you had your own vehicle and you were able to come and go pretty much as as you wanted within certain parameters. Yeah, and I found having a truck and a car gave you independence, but I also learned at a very young age that having financial independence was also something that once you have it, you don't want to lose it. And so my mother and father convinced me that saving for college was really important because they didn't want to have to mortgage the house to be able to pay for uh, my education. I remember at 17, I had a, a sort of a knockdown, drag out discussion with my father over the fact that he continued to claim me on his tax return because I was under 18. The accountant that was doing my return said that because I wasn't claiming myself, I was paying twice as much income tax. So I told them that they can't claim me for income tax any longer, and I'll take over full responsibility for my college education. And that was the solution that my father and I came to because he believed that the deduction was more valuable to him as a, as a doctor than it was to me as a 17-year-old kid thinking I'm heading off to college. And again, I'm sure that as long as you're living under my roof came up more than once. <laughs> oh, boy, did it. Oh, boy, did it. And I, so, yes, exactly. So uh, that was the last year, as soon as I graduated from high school, went off to college. I lived independently from that time forward. And you went off to college, University of Puget Sound? Yeah, correct. Puget Sound was a small liberal arts college in Tacoma. It was the only college I applied to. While I was in high school, the counselors uh, were not particularly optimistic about my prospects for a four-year college education. My test scores uh, for SATs were, were in the bottom two percentile. Their recommendations were that I would not apply, that I should not apply to colleges uh, because I would struggle and probably not be successful. Obviously, it didn't have much to do with your intelligence. Was that a testing issue? Was that something? I mean, how did you feel when you were given that kind of news? I just looked at it as a challenge, okay? okay. And so I looked at it and said, just don't tell anybody else, okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> This between you and I. <laughs> yeah, just don't tell anybody else, and I will prove that, that although it will be more difficult for me, it wasn't a problem for me as long as other people weren't talking about it. So. Does that put a little chip on your shoulder that you want to prove, you know, you made a mistake here and I'm much more than you thought I was going to be. Oh, yeah. Okay. But during that time, your parents were supportive. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that the school system suggested, but they were supportive of you going to continue this path that you're going to have at Puget Sound. What did you major in? What was your business finance and Eastern religions. So by the time I finished my freshman year, I had finished most of the financial requirements. At a liberal arts school, math was really good. I was really good at managing through math and solving those problems. But the, the uh, reading and writing uh, part of uh, the education, I flipped to um, filling all those requirements by studying Eastern, Eastern religions. 
And in my junior year, 20 students and a professor and his wife spent the six months on what is called the Pacific Rim Program, where we started in Fiji, ended up in uh, Greece, but we were mostly in uh, India, Nepal, uh, Sri Lanka. Spent a month in Sri Lanka living in a Buddhist monastery in the center of Sri Lanka. And in sort of 79 and 80, the the uh, city of Kathmandu still had sewer was in the sidewalk and there were no cars in the in the city. What sort of an impact did that kind of experience have on you at that time? It was phenomenal in seeing the rest of the world and, you know, growing up in a small rural community where the big city of Sumner had a population of less than 9,000. It was transformational to understanding that different people can live different ways and the religions, whether it's Buddhist or Judaism, Christianity, they're all melded in different, in different ways in different, in different cultures. And I would think that that has to impact you and put things into a far different perspective about life than before you made that trip. Yeah. It's almost transformational in some Yeah, regards. transformational. I mean, whether or not it's in your personal life and how you live your personal life um, to how you manage yourself in business. So when you look at situations, you realize that there is a much broader perspective to solving the problem. Not everyone thinks, okay, like you think and shouldn't, particularly as it related to religions. I spend a lot of time studying Buddhism, although I grew up in a Lutheran church, you would think that, you know, those those two perspectives are, are very far, very far apart, yet you find uh, that there's an enormous amount of commonality when you really dig in. I find that so true that even though we are, whether it be opinions or where we live or religions or whatever, if we really look at it, we have more in common in most cases than we have. And we get so polarized now in our society that if I've always believed if you can sit down and talk with people, you'll find out that the gap isn't as big as you might think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So because we do share these broadcasts, many of our listeners with their kids and grandkids and things like that, this travel experience at an early age I would imagine you'd recommend that to anybody that has the opportunity to, to go ahead and do that. Absolutely. With our children, we sat down with them at 12 and talked about a family constitution. Part of that family constitution would be that they would be encouraged in a way that almost made it a requirement to live outside of the country for at least two years um, in order to be able to have access to full access to inner workings of the various different family businesses. All of our kids have lived abroad. Uh, my daughter today st- still lives in Hong Kong. So Now, you've had these experiences. You're still in college. The question always at that time was, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Did you have any thought at that time of where this was going to go? Because we always talk about the twists and turns that one's life takes. What was your thought about what you wanted to do when you grew up? Finance and Eastern religions was a was an interesting mix. Um, most other people were getting traditional accounting business or other kinds of degrees, and they were going off. I never thought that I would actually get a job working for someone else. When I was a senior in college, I had been doing a lot of work for some people in the real estate business helping them manage their properties, which was really doing the construction work, hanging sheetrock and, you know, fixing appliances. Um, so they let me build a, an office in their building, and I never, I, I, I never took a job after college. I, I went straight into working for myself. Where did you get that confidence, that self-confidence, that you could go out on your own and be successful? Or was there ever even a question in your mind about that? To me, it was safer. Okay. okay. Um, to me, I actually thought about it as, you know, working for someone else. I had to, that company had to continue to be successful in order to be able to pay me. And there were all of the political inner workings of, of the organization of when did you come to work and what is your title and 
all, all that seemed frankly scary to me. It didn't didn't appear to me to be sort of a safe a safe route to be able to keep both bank accounts full. And so, I mean, you you control your own destiny, then in a process. Yeah. yeah. So you 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 control your own destiny, but you also man you're also able to manage and control. Okay the outcome. So the, the more you work and the more you manage the relationships in business with other people, ultimately feeds on itself. So you start at the bottom and you're doing what you want to do and you have control at least to a certain degree of your destiny because you're not working necessarily for someone else. How does that evolve? Well, it started like you said at the bottom, they, the, there was a dirty, dungy basement of this old 100-year-old house with low ceilings. And they said that if I wanted to put a desk and a phone down in that dirty basement, I could. So I went down and I sheetrocked it and I put nice carpet in and put a desk in and ran the phone line down. And that was where you start. That's the start. Yeah. Who were some of your earliest influences? Gary Coy was a was a major influence. He was the uh, person that uh, uh, sparked my interest in splitting fence posts because he needed a hundred fence posts and he was buying them for a buck and a quarter. And I told him I would sell them. I would make them all hundred of them for for a dollar a piece. He was also one of the people that was officing in the building, uh, the real estate building, when I was in the basement. So he approached me and said, "Look." He was working real hard and didn't want to get his broker's license, even though he had his real estate license. And so he said that if I would go get the broker's license, he and I could form a real estate brokerage company called Corliss and Coy. I sat for all the tests and uh, got my broker's license before I graduated from college. That started uh, the brokering land okay, and properties to then deciding to buy land from one of the other real estate guys in the building. So it sounds to me like you always throughout life up to this point, you almost had a plan every step of the way. What drove you? What, what was the driving force? Is it to make some money, to be a career, to have a career? What, what's driving you at that point? It is not money, okay? okay. There's just uh, not... Money is a currency, okay, that um, you can use to trade, okay, be in the game. It's really the highs that you get from watching a business transaction. Largely what, what I was doing was ultimately building buildings, watching the physical construction of apartment buildings, watching the physical subdivision of property and roads and I couldn't get enough of that building out infrastructure. So a satisfaction of seeing a project completed, a satisfaction of seeing a job well done. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of twists and turns in making that happen. You have to deal with the municipalities. You have to deal with the zoning codes. You, you know, and here I am, you know, 21 years old, managing through the permit processes and then managing through all the f all of the physical, you know, construction um, of the improvement. And you have to be one of the youngest people that many of these people are dealing with. I mean, at your age, there wasn't a whole lot of your peers that are doing what you're doing. For sure. They were all 20, 30 years older than I was. They thought it was interesting, okay, <laughs> that I was as, as engaged in wanting to, to do these things. But you also have to remember that at that time, this is 1983, 82, 83, interest rates were at 21%. What I learned at going to lunch is that some of these guys were really struggling. They, they owed the bank money, and they owed it at very high interest rates. The cash flows were not there to cover a lot of the debt service without continuing to have the bank advance funds. So they were, they were interested in having conversations about anybody who, who wanted to do things in a sort of a new way. It was interesting times. In retrospect, it was an interesting time for you to be involved in the start of your career because young people today 
have never had that experience of these, let's hope it doesn't happen, but those high interest rates. So you had a schooling at a time, in effect, in business that was invaluable as you went forward, I would think. Yeah, and what I learned really young was that the real estate people always had a financial partner who owned a business. And it was the business owner that utilized the cash flow from their business to support the real estate operation or the real estate developer. The real estate developer had to have that partner in order to be able to survive when the market takes a turn down. What advice would you give a young person today because we're now entering in a, an uneven time in our financial community? What advice do you give, would you give somebody today? You really want to look at the cash flow. You want to make sure that you are managing to interest rate volatility risk. And you have to go, what would I do? What would I do if rates double? You have to be thinking about the downside 80% or more of worst, the time. Worst case scenarios. Yeah. Even though you don't want to think about the worst case scenario, you need to process what kinds of things you would do if that occurred. If you're borrowing money's great, you just need to keep lots of cash sitting in a separate account when things twist, that you you have the ability to be able to access either your own cash or you have a plan, B, C, D, and E, for where you're going to come up with the cash to be able to hold your real estate holdings long-term or your business interests long-term. I think that today, today people think way too short-term. It's, you know, it's 30 days, 90 days, one year, people in the real estate industry talk about long-term holds. Well, I plan to hold it for five years, but I sold it after three. You know, I, I think that the smart thing to do is to think of things in decades. When you own and you make investments that where you actually are analyzing things from a much longer-term perspective, you yourself can control a lot more of the outcome. And to a small degree, it goes back to your mom's two bank theories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so we never get too far away from those life lessons that yeah. we had when we were young. So you're in this partnership. Yep. How does that evolve into the next part of your business life? I wanted to own real estate and Gary wanted to more broker the real estate. So I uh, bought some land from one of the other guys in the building. The first building project, even before I graduated, was a 36-unit apartment building. The loan amount that I figured I needed was $1 million. I, 22 years old, borrowing a $1 million seemed like a new challenge. I uh, approached a bank in Tacoma, not far from the office, um, had my pitch for lending a 22-year-old kid a $1 million when interest rates were high. And he made me a proposal to lend me the full million dollars. I just needed to come back with 50000 of OPM, other people's money, or obviously I didn't have 50000 and that he would credit me $50,000 for the equity or the fees I would have otherwise deferred as part of the development. And the interest rate was 14.5%, and I thought the interest rate should be closer to 12 but he said that I had to go look for a loan. I went and looked about for about 60 days and got no other takers. So I went back and said, Bob, let's draw those, let's draw up those papers for 14 and a half percent and borrowed a million dollars to build what was then the Lake Chalet apartments. So now you're, you haven't graduated from college yet. Yeah, just graduated. Just graduated. Yep. 22. You are now in, having these units. You're in debt because of that. Yep. What comes next? Savings banks at the time were struggling because of the um, high interest rates they were paying for deposits and the historical loans that they'd lent on home mortgages. So the uh, U.S. government, in its infinite wisdom, decided to deregulate the savings and loan industry. And in the deregulation, they uh, said that savings and loans, which only, could ha only had to have 3% equity, could take direct ownership in real estate. This part of the story will take some twists and turns, Marty. As I tell you the story, you understand why government action at times can, <laughs> can turn into uh, problems. A fraternity brother of mine was the bank's attorney that I borrowed the original million dollars for the Lake Chalet apartments. That 
Lake Chalet was successful. We went off to build the Kathmandu apartments, again with straight bank debt. The idea was after we built the Kathmandu apartments, we were going to go to Kathmandu, Nepal, owning two apartment buildings, you wouldn't have to work anymore. Well, they, this deregulation of the savings and loan industry was uh, where they could take direct ownership. Bank's attorney said to me that we're going to finance this stuff 100%. And I said, 100%. Yeah. He goes, and I understand that they're going to give you 3% for your overhead. I said, can you make the introduction? He says, yes. Bob Healy, who is the chairman of the bank's fraternity brother, is going to run this, and he's moving up here from Arizona. So I go down, and I meet Bob Healy. His third day on the job, he and I jump in the car and go out and look at a 142-unit apartment building site that I had under contract. We go back to the office and said, how quickly can you start? I said, I can start in about a week. So we dropped the papers. They lend us 103% of the cost, 3% for my overhead, and they give us 50% of the equity. A six-page document. Marty, a six-page document written by the bank's attorney, a fraternity brother of mine, is all we do. What they did is they did something interesting. They put everything into a trust. This is circa 1983. LLCs didn't exist as corporate entities. And the trust ensured that the bank could put all the funds in and that the partner couldn't file into bankruptcy because it was actually the title to the property was actually held in trust. So we go off and build that apartment building. It took us about eight months to build it. We sold it. We split $980,000, just under a million. And the bank chairman said, how many more of these deals can Mike do? And so literally within less than two and a half years, we had 800 units under construction. We were kicking back hundreds of thousands of dollars per project to the bank. The savings loan went public. The chairman of the board wanted to meet me. We end up at this restaurant in Tacoma. I show up. I got a bow tie on, blue jeans, and a blue blazer, right? You could take the bow tie off quickly, drop the blue blazer in the back, and be back on the construction site. So chairman shows up. Bob Healy is not there yet. He says to me, he says, hey, Mike, when's your dad going to get here? And I said, uh, well, my dad's not coming. He goes, well, you're our partner? How old are you? And I said, uh, <laughs> I just took a sip of my iced tea, and I said, I'm 25. He goes, well, he goes, Mike, I think, I think the bank is partnered with you, and we have more than $30 million advanced. You know, and so Bob... Bob Healy shows up and said, I see, that you met, I see that you met our partner, Mike. He says, yeah. He said, he's really young, and he, he, we've lent him a lot of money. He was uncomfortable. He was uncomfortable. He, he, he became comfortable, but he was, he was clearly uncomfortable because he, he recognized the risk that the bank had, the bank had lent a lot of money in less than a three-year period to someone who's obviously very young. But they had seen results. Oh, sure. So just because he walked in and this person was young, he made an assessment that maybe, had you been your father, yep. this conversation would have never taken place. I mean, his uh, questioning your ability to, to move forward would have never taken place. No. No, never. So how did that affect you? I mean, you're sitting there, and now you've been successful. You've, it's been a win-win so far. I mean, everybody's succeeded. Absolutely. Otherwise, the chairman wouldn't even be sitting down here. Right. How does that lunch end? Oh, it, it ends really well. I could tell he was uncomfortable. I told him that the problem with the current arrangement was is that they wanted to book earnings, and I wanted to hold equity. He quickly understood during lunch that, that the conversations from a banking perspective, you know, that, that I wasn't a 20, I wasn't talking to him like a 25 year old. He said, well, what do you think of the solution to this? We want the earnings and you want the equity. And I said, I think that you should, after you're going public, you should sell me the balance of your equity. And he said, well, how would we do that? And I said, well, other banks don't want to work with me because they think that 
the only bank I work with is you guys because we're partners. So if you sell me your equity, you could book quarterly earnings, which would be good for you over the next two to three years, and I buy your interest out. And so he says, why don't you go back and talk to Mr. Corliss about how he can buy our equity out of all of the stuff that's under construction. We talk about this a lot with about young people. Again, I get back to that. You need to be solution-oriented when you're having any sort of a business conversation. People can all come up with the problems, but people who can come up with solutions can then move on and be more successful. That's obviously what, ha what happened here. He didn't have the solution. You gave, it, you gave him an out. You gave him a way to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the SNL debacle that occurred after this, he understood the risk of this direct investment in real estate and was interested after the bank went public from a mutual to pairing that risk back. He was very smart in doing that. It was a win to the bank. It was good for us. We never had a problem paying all of the people, all the people that did all the construction work we had. We paid twice a month where everybody else was paying late once a month. Explain to those who weren't there about this whole debacle, as <laughs> you've explained it. What effect did that have on, have on you? What effect did that have on business throughout the country? So the savings and loans and the banks got over leveraged. Borrowers were unable to make good on their bank commitments. Government had to step in and shore up uh, the balance sheets of the bank because they were over leveraged. Only 3% equity at a savings and loan who was taking direct real estate risk with a 25 year old is, a, you know, I mean, just, you know, you don't have to be that, okay, smart to be able to go, wow, that doesn't sound like that's going to work out well in the end. It affected all of the people who owned real estate. We were fortunate in for the sale of the first building with the bank. We used the proceeds of that to buy bank stock in a small bank in, in Sumner, where I grew up. Bought a roof structural manufacturing business in 1985. So it was those, it was the fact that we owned bank stocks that were liquid and we owned a manufacturing business that allowed us to survive the SNL debacle. What happened is that we had apartment buildings that we had construction loans on that there was no, there was no permanent takeout. So there was no takeout market to, to pay off the construction loans. It was really, 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 really rough. I learned what a car payment was on a construction loan. That was a, a, a bank that we wouldn't do business with anymore. Took a construction loan that we had and said, you have to amortize it over five years. I think we were traditionally have a 30-year loan on an apartment building. And they essentially said that you'll have to sell. We figured that you got six months to sell half your bank stocks, and we're going to sweep effectively 100% of your cash flow from your operating businesses to, to pay down the principal on that apartment building loan. You learn how to live on top ramen in order to be able to meet 100% of the commitments. These are tough times. How do you survive? How do you move forward? You work Saturdays. You work all day Sunday. You sit down and you, you map out a plan. That plan is... And there's no secret to this. Working harder is the only way out. No, it's the only way out. There's no other way out. You can't go to the bar and drink it off. You can't just not show up at the office and assume it's going to go away. you got to be there. You have to be a leader, okay, because all the other people around you are scared. So you have to instill confidence in them that you're going to work your way through all that. They are counting on you doing that, okay? All the contractors are counting on getting paid. All the banks want to make sure they get their interest and their principal payments. And all of the employees that are working for you, they want to know, because a lot of people are getting laid off. A lot of other people are finding their properties are going into foreclosure. You have to stand strong. You have to meet with each of the people and explain to them that you're going to meet your commitment by 100%. How would you define leadership? You have to lead by example. If you want people to help you and work hard, you have to be the first one there and you have to be the last one out of the office. You, and if you're not in the office and you're not working there, you have to come back with enough goods, okay, enough productivity to show them that you're there to support the outcome and you're there to map out the plan. And if you need to change the plan, you're the first person to work to modify that plan. 
you encourage other people to participate and to participate means that you need to listen and you then need to listen and then you need to use what you what you heard to put into action so that they also have buy-in where you're going. You have to have a shared vision. I mean, you have to be a visionary and have people buy into that vision and believe in that vision. I mean, I mean you, you're having to look seven steps down the road and you have to make sure that they feel that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely, and you have to compensate them and you have to take care of them and I look at it and I also go, I think about all of the people that I've worked with and continue to work with. And I think about their families and I think about how important it is that it's, it's not just a paycheck, it's a career. They have to believe what the mission of the business is. They have to be proud of where they're going to work. They have to be proud about the people that they're working with and around. It's not the money, it's the culture. You have to believe in the culture, you have to set the culture, and then you have to operate within that. And again, it gets back to what you talked about before, I think, and that's long-term. This isn't a t next Tuesday kind of thing. You have to have a long-term vision about where, where you're going and how you're going to get there. It's been 39 years this year. I think the culture of the businesses that we have is the same. And I think that people, people today want to sort of reimagine a, a new culture, you know, every two or three years. And I, I think that that's, that's challenging for people. Challenging for businesses. So now you obviously get through this very, very difficult time, this challenging time. As you start to come out of this, and how long does this take for you really to, the top ramen is off the table and you're now eating regular meals. Yeah. How, how long does that take? And then where does that go on the next step? So it took about 18 to 24 months before the permanent markets, life insurance companies, agency lenders to the apartment buildings had loan programs that, that would allow you to fully pay off all of the construction debt. After we worked our way through that, we ultimately didn't have to sell any of the bank stocks. We ultimately kept all of the or the roof trust manufacturing companies. And it became clear to me at that point that although building real estate built equity, building the operating companies was was more important. So we we focused on the roof structural manufacturing businesses, expanded those businesses into uh, Nevada, uh, Oregon, in order to be able to build operating businesses that had, again, decades, it was about 1985. Building on the operating companies was important to where the, to where the, future, to right. where the future of the business went. When you go through something like this, success at a very young age, a lot of success at a very young age, does an experience like this humble you? Do you look at things differently as you move forward now than you did when you were 22, 23 years old? To me, it's the same. I don't think of it differently. If you got to take the garbage to the dump, you take the garbage to the dump on Saturday. And I don't understand how other people who find success and all of a sudden they become somebody different than who they were before they had that success. You move forward, you move through this difficult time. Uh, how does the business evolve and how does your companies evolve next? Every 10 years, in the real estate cycle and business cycles, there's a two years where things are really ugly. We just came out of that two-year ugly period. So we continued to buy land and build apartment buildings. We bought a lot of things that I would say were on the fringe, further out. 87 and 1988, we bought properties from the Burlington Northern Railroads that were zoned industrial but had no infrastructure. The, those were, those were decade-long plays because you would ultimately need to move all of this, what was then farmland. Learned how to work with farmers to farm land. Had a lot of berry farms on that land, had a lot of turf farms out there. Those large tracts of land allowed us to sell our the property we own in the Port of Tacoma, where the first roof truss manufacturing plant was, was to Simpson Timber Company. We ultimately moved the roof truss plant out to some of the land where the that we bought from the railroads. On the topic of the ground you buy from the railroads in the 80s and early 90s is the land that we just delivered a 
500,000 square foot building to Nordstrom's in January for a fulfillment center on. So when I talk about decades, you think about ground that you bought in the late 80s from Burlington Northern Railroad that's flat and in the valley next to a freeway that is now home to a half a million square feet in the town you grew up in that will employ over 500 people in the fulfillment. Helly Hansen's moving in in May into 400,000 square feet next to that. You think about these you know, decades where you start way back here. Every five years, you're just moving it a little bit further down the, down the road. And to circumstances that didn't even exist when you first bought the property. And we moved from, we moved from building apartment buildings to doing industrial buildings because of the management. For every thousand apartments you have, you have to have a hundred and some full-time employees. Love having employees, love having the business around that, but you know, you can have a million square feet of industrial space and you have two employees. So it was both a diversification, but also it was less management intensive to manage the industrial portion of our business. What's the status of, of your business and where do you see it going in the future? Well, today our industrial assets are up and down the West Coast, California, Nevada, and uh, Washington State. They delivered uh, about a mil- just over a million square feet of new uh, building last year. We're still building residential, a multifamily, mostly garden court, and we're building that further outside of major metropolitan areas. We have a large single-family subdivision group that builds out lots for the home building industry. So we're sort of in various different sectors, not buying as much land today because values are are at all-time highs, trying to quickly get through any of the infrastructure we we have to get through per, get through permitting covid covid with people working remotely where all the cities and everybody are shut down, takes forever to get building permits to process stuff. I have stepped back from the real estate operations 20-some years ago now, only work on the strategic decisions about where, where we're making large investments. I have really spent most of, my, uh, most of the last 20 years in the sort of farming and the winery-related businesses in Walla Walla. Was getting into the wine business a dream of yours, something that just happened? How did this all come about? Because it's a separate success story. In 1999, after we came out on another one of those two-year lulls and, you know, 97 wasn't particularly good, I transitioned the real estate operating businesses and the real estate development businesses to people who'd been there for a long time. It was time for them to take larger, larger positions, take the titles and take the compensation associated with that. What do you do? You know, you're not even 40. You gotta, you can't just like retire. I moved to Walla Walla, Washington. Again, a small town that reminded me somewhat of the town I grew up of, Sumner. Bought an old building and thought, well, I know how to build things. So we're going to build a top-notch winery building. And I'm going to partner with some a winemaker, some wine people. And they're going to be the wine people. I'm just going to be the building owner for a couple of years. Um, well, n- they never asked me to come back to Seattle or Sumner to do anything other than attend board meetings or send me off to go talk to a banker about some something that they wanted done. Pretty soon, you know, the winemaker didn't want to be a tenant. The winemaker wanted to be an employee. So um, it just it just evolved. Farming and operating, you know, farm equipment and tractors and buying stuff, buying equipment and figuring out how to make wine in a more natural way, learning and making decisions about the clones of grape varietals that you need to plant in the vineyard and you need to understand which how to put them how far apart six foot rows eight foot rows and you know how to orient them to the sun i mean you know i heard about a guy that went out and started just you know camping in his vineyard before he planted it and sleeping out there so he understood exactly where the sun came up across i used to think that that was horseshit okay but no i'm telling you you have to be out there you have to be out there on the property day, morning, noon, night for weeks to be able to understand exactly how that sun is going to ripen that fruit. You have to understand where the air drainage goes so that on the slope, 
cold air falls and you don't want to you don't want to get frosted out and then elevations you know how far above sea level if you're down on the low lining flatland that's going to be not as good as being on the hillside particularly in Washington state where cabernet and Sarah are king but you need to be at certain certain elevations so these were these were things that took my mind away from wanting to I needed something that I could really sink into in my 40s because I was not ready to retire and I needed to stay away from the all the other operating businesses to let those people evolve them a strong work ethic immerse yourself in the business whatever that business is whether it was the real estate business there's no other shortcut that's what you have to do and you need to build a team of people you have to find a great mechanic to run the shops you have to have great leads to run the vineyards we went from seasonal labor which would be traditional in this industry to full-time employment and what we did is we built fences and started raising sheep. In that industry, I couldn't understand it. How does a family live, you know, getting paid seven months a year, and what do they do the other three months? Where are their kids going to school, and what do their kids say? Well, my father and my mother work someplace, but they only work seven, eight months. It doesn't sound like a right cultural thing. This business that started, well, I need something to do, this is a big, big business now. You have some acreage. You make a lot of wine. You've been very, very successful. What decisions did you make to say, okay, this is going to be bigger than I even thought it was going to be? Yeah, well, you can make wine, but then you have to sell the wine. It's a lot easier to sell really good wine. We kept on the, you got to make really good wine because it's easier to sell. And we ended up buying vineyards in order to be able to control the fruit source. In most mature wine regions, the vineyards and the wineries are co-owned by the same groups. In Washington State, wineries were starting, but they didn't actually own the vineyards. So we first bought one vineyard, then two, and now it's seven. We sell fruit to 30 five to 40 other wineries in Washington. We have Corliss, the original brand, Tranche, which is located in the Blue Mountain Vineyard in Walla Walla. I would call it a brand that we developed called Secret Squirrel. This is the brand for people that don't want to buy the stodgy old high quality Corliss wine. They want something that is a little younger and more approachable. There's three wineries the seven vineyards. Then we started providing support services to the wine industry through trucking a bottling facility for bottling of others' wines and a wine production facility called uh, Walla Walla Wine Services. Between the vineyards, the wineries, and the uh, winery services business, we employ about 110 people full-time. Most of us sit back and say, boy, that'd be a great thing. I would like to, <laughs> I'd yeah. like to have a winery. It's, <laughs> and again, as you, you have already alluded to, there's a lot more to it than just uh, growing grapes. I mean, and you have to really understand it and you have to get, immerse yourself in the product. How involved are you now on a day-to-day basis in all of that? Up until about two years ago, I was involved in every every aspect of the farming side and every aspect of the winery services side. Lori handled all of the administrative and marketing and sales uh, aspect of all of the wineries. We were fortunate enough to have our oldest daughter, who now lives in, in Walla Walla, or lived there the last six years. She has now taken over all the operations as of about two years ago. Um, So my involvement is responding to emails from her, talking to her, you know, every other every other day on something. But she's really operationally taken over. But you never can get away all the way. Deciding to buy two new tractors still comes to me. You have a passion for this business now after all these years of being involved in it. Absolutely. I mean, the product is yours. It has your name on it. And it's the only thing that we've ever attached our name to. All of the other businesses, you know, even if you go to the websites and you look at them, they're really hard to track down Mike Corliss and or his involvement in the business. It sort of goes back to being you know, young and having that bank chairman was uncomfortable with my age. I've always preferred to be the guy in the office rather than the guy in the office or guy in the field talking about the construction stuff, but not the guy whose name is attached to it. But the wine business became personal. It became personal to the point that you'd spent so much time 
felt like the right thing to do to uh, name the first brand after the family. And to get your family involved, if they want, that has to give you a feeling of pride, too, to have your daughter there working with it. And I know family is important to you and your kids. I know you have a son that's now a member here at Bighorn. Family's always been a big part of this, too, for you. Absolutely. I never had the expectation that any of the kids would actually come to work in the different businesses. Real estate, you need to think about decades, okay? In the wine business, you need to think about 100 years. My hope was to get the business to be P&L profitable at the end of 10 years. That, that was a struggle. Uh, it's been 20, and we're just making it. The next generation family has to be committed to that farming business and that wine business for decades more. It's a generational business. I absolutely. Mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to get into the wine business, you had to start in your 40s. I didn't even start a, to start the wine business at 60. That's crazy. Okay, because it's, it's going to take you 20 years to be where it's just sort of humming along. It takes a lot of capital. You don't want to sell your businesses before you get in the wine business because it just <laughs> sucks capital. It sucks capital like no other business I've ever seen. In a relatively short period of time, you've had a great degree of success. You know, we were the 17th, 18th winery in Walla Walla, and there's 130 there today. Being a, a native from Washington State, being committed to watching the, the wine industry evolve has been a fun and interesting journey. Well, we talk about the twists and turns, and you certainly had some of those in your business life. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Integrity. You got to have integrity. That's the number one thing. What is your management philosophy? Let them run. Let people do and take control, operate as independently from you as they can. Everybody needs to believe in the mission. They need to believe that they're building the business or they're building the real estate for a common outcome. They need to be financially rewarded for the success of the business. Just a couple months ago, maybe a year ago now, we had a joke. I came up with the make Josh a millionaire. I think he's about 30. He's got all the integrity in the world and mission driven. And so they didn't understand that we needed to change the compensation structure and his equity participation to make him wealthy in order for all the rest of us in that particular business area to be, you know, solid for the next 20 or 30 years because he's going to be the leader of that organization. You have to look to your people. You have to look to them when they're young enough in their career that they don't have to wait out the retirement of somebody who may want to keep pushing their retirement out a couple of years at a time. And don't you think in, in most successful companies, the employees have a feeling of ownership. They have a pride in the company. That's a culture that you talked about before. And some of that's financial compensation, but it's also what we used to call psychic income. People, they've just bought in, and that's the leadership again that allows that to happen. Dana has worked with me for 38 years. She was the, she was the accountant, okay? She still is my accountant our accountant. She started in the basement of that old building in Tacoma. Marty, we have so many people there that have been there 20 years. We have what we call generation two of the people who've been there for 25 or 30 years. The next generation of their family is working in the business. Sometimes referred to as, Lori refers to it as an infectious culture. You become infected in a positive way by the culture that is surrounding these people and what they are doing. That can at times be intimidating to people that come into an organization and find that there is these people who have been mission-driven for decades that are still working together. You know, it's almost like, is there something wrong here? (laughs) (laughs) Is it a cult? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, what, 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 what is it? Remember that there's still operating properties that we built in the 80s. You know, they call it the four-letter word. Mike doesn't like to talk about, doesn't, we don't want to talk about the four-letter word. And the four-letter word is sell. Because selling something means that you're passing something that you've owned for decades along to new ownership. And so we very seldom 
have sold off. We we do, you know, once a year, once every couple of years, maybe sell one little thing. And when we do that, we go to the everybody that works at the company says, if we're going to sell something, what property is it that you want to sell? So they'll go through and they'll do this analysis and they come up. It's really, it's one that's been the most difficult to manage, the most, it, it's the most problematic to them. And so they select. Very different than most owners would go, I'm not going to let the management team decide which of my assets to sell. That's not how we operate it. Um, they all buy in to the decision to sell something because they know Mike doesn't want to sell anything. Who's had the greatest influence on your life? And it could be multiple people. It doesn't have to be one person. Well, Gary, certainly early in my life was very influential. Uh, Mike Federley, a member here for many, many years, had huge influence on me. He took me out on the golf course when my golf swing was not very good. He and I had many, many, many lunches and cocktails after the end of the day here at Bighorn. My wife, Lori, has you know, been an instrumental rock to me through both the ups and the downs. Now it's actually our adult children who I go to who are, are instrumental in helping to guide what my thinking is today. With all your accomplishments, what drives you today? Wanting to get up during the day, get up and go out and tackle whatever is in front of us. The motivation today to go buy new businesses, operate them, is as great today as it's ever been. I'm not bored. What brought you to Bighorn and what were your first impressions of Mr. Hubbard when you met him? I owned a house down on Mesa View with a business partner. Kids were young, one and three. There's another club around the corner that didn't want to show us property because we were had a too young of a family. Came up to Bighorn, at the time owned by Westinghouse. Bought a lot, met Mr. Federley, built the house back in 95 and joined the club in 96. You meet Mr. Hubbard in the locker room. Remember back then there was only 70 members here? A different time. Mr. Hubbard was putting together the group to buy out Westinghouse. It was during the time that I met him just as he was closing the transaction with the group to buy out Westinghouse, cut the deal with Safeco Insurance Company's division of Winmar from Seattle, and they own the property across the street where the Canyons is now. Being a real estate guy and watching Mr. Hubbard put on his apron and take out his big knife and carve up that deal was amazing. Really, really amazing. My most interesting encounter with Mr. Hubbard was when his grandson Derek and my son Eben, who is a member here, Eben comes home and says he's going to go to a football game with Derek to watch his brother play football. Well, assumption is just that that football game is right here in Palm Desert. So Eben leaves at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and gets home about 10 o'clock at night. He's 8. And he says to me, they went to Kansas on Mr. Hubbard's airplane to watch the football game. And that Mr. Hubbard was so happy that he brought his stocking cap that Mr. Hubbard wanted to borrow Eben's stocking cap because it was cold in Kansas. I just laughed about how is it that you let your 8-year-old son at Bighorn go with his friend to watch the football game, gets home at 10 o'clock and flies all the way to Kansas and back. Mr. Hubbard the next day says, your son was so great yesterday, and he brought his stocking cap. I kept taking it from him because it was cold. Wow, that, that is a great story. And, of course, with Mr. Hubbard, you never knew where you were going to be going. No. Uh, that's for sure, whether you were a child, an 8-year-old, or an adult. The last question, Mike, is what advice would you give the 20-year-old? Working hard, there's no substitution for working hard. But I would, I would also say that you need to work smart. You need to subscribe to the, the early bird gets the worm. More probably important for the 20-year-old is, is that you need to fish in a pond where everybody else is not fishing. And you need to feel comfortable with that. You're going to be much more successful long-term, and you're going to be much happier if you are fishing in a pond where everybody else is not fishing. Mike, I really want to thank you for coming in today and doing this. And I think, as I mentioned to you earlier, these are stories that can be shared and are useful to multi-generations. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming in. I read a, 
a comment that Laurie made, actually, that said Bighorn can be anything you want it to be. It can be as social as you want it to be. You can have time for yourself if you want to do that. I know that you guys are somewhat private about your life and you don't need to be high profile, but for you to come in here and share these stories, your stories, I really do appreciate and thanks again for coming in. Marty, thank you. It's been a pleasure to sit down with you. You and I have known each other for many, many years. I was honored when you said that you would like to sit down in the Bighorn Conference Room and have a one-on-one discussion. Thank you, Mike, for sharing your story, much of which shows how our lives are constantly evolving and how we should be open to new opportunities to follow our passions. Thanks also to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers and Back Nine Greens for their support. We will be presenting another episode of Interesting People and Their Extraordinary Stories on the Bighorn Podcast in the near future.